Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Craig Stanlin. You may remember his name from the news. He was convicted for mail fraud and served time in federal prison. He is now a free man, an author, and here to tell us about how he turned his story of fraud, shame, and unworthiness into a new story. Craig, welcome. Let's start with your father. You had a good relationship with your dad, and your dad was an attorney? He is, yes. He's a patent attorney. It's a little bit different than the criminal attorney that I would have needed in this situation. It was actually really tough having him in that position and having to go through it like that. And the judge, even at sentencing, my father spoke on behalf of the family. So when he went in front of the judge, she acknowledged the fact that he was an attorney. You know, this must be very difficult for you as an attorney to be, you know, on this side and doing what you're about to do. You know, and I'm just sitting there like feeling horrible, filled with shame. Daddy couldn't bail you out. He could not bail me out and I would not have asked him to. I wouldn't have done that to him at all. I was wrong. I tried bailing myself out by making an immediate $100,000 payment towards restitution. It's like when you're a specialist doctor and your son gets sick with something not in your field at all and you can't help him. Oh God, those are like the best television shows and movies when that happens. My dad and I have talked very openly about it. He's never brought up like, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. It was, it is what it is. You were wrong. And this is what happened. He's very pragmatic and just very logical and extremely loving and wonderful. You know, there's only one time his first visit in prison. It was not the most ideal time to do this. I was only in for a week and a half, two weeks, still adjusting to my surroundings. He came for a visit. It was really great, but he laid into me. That's when he gave me the talking to, and he got it off of his chest. It hurt so bad in that moment. You know, I think I'm going to end up getting divorced, and I've lost everything, and I don't know what the hell's going on. And now my dad's just leaning into me. For lack of a better term, that sucked. What did he say? I have thought about that, and I cannot remember exactly what it was, but it was along the lines of, you knew better. What were you thinking? How stupid? I just remember feeling like, you're stupid. You didn't say that, but I just remember taking that from it. What you did was stupid, which it was. And you're in prison, too. Doesn't that make you look weak, like you were just told by your dad? I didn't even think about that, but yeah, I think there was... But I'll tell you, everybody was completely like, ooh. Everybody has had their dad talk to them in that way. So every single person just related to it was just like, oh, man, I'm, oh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Everybody was really cool about it. They were sympathetic. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wants to be on that end. Nobody wants to experience that. That's not fun. Did you ever get that as a kid? Yes, I definitely did. My father is so interesting in the sense that my dad does not raise his voice at all. He is this wickedly articulate, wickedly smart man. I think he's one of the smartest men on the planet. You know, my friend Sean and I would give us sometimes mutual talking tos. And Sean would just, he could still to this day be like, your dad would lean up against this one kitchen counter, put his hands across his chest, have his hand, you know, one, his right hand up by his ear, and just do this waving thing with his hand. He goes, and I knew I was in for it. I knew I was in for it for at least an hour. 
And I knew I was going to leave there feeling much different than I walked in. Tell me about your mom. My mom is the sweetest, nicest human being on the planet. She was so unbelievably supportive through everything. She did a little bit of the hear no evil, see no evil, not my son. She was like, no, 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 I'm not going to let that in. She sent me a great book in prison that totally helped me out, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. It was just so awesome to introduce me into that. Little things like that and coming for visits. Sometimes my aunt and my mom would come for a joint visit. And the prison I was in was very close to Woodbury Commons. So they're sitting there like, oh, this is great. We get to go to prison and we get to go shop. We're going shopping after this. So they'd spend a night at a hotel and they would have shopping sprees. They made a day of it. What was happening here? You know I'm in prison, right? My mom, during one of her visits, she's got her pocketbook and she puts it next to her. She looks around, she looks to the right, she looks to the left, and she looks to the guard. What is my mom doing? She reaches into her bag and she pulls out this folded paper towel. She puts it in the middle of the table and then looks away as if she didn't do it. Like, you know, I'm innocent. I, I don't know how that thing got there. She's like, oh, I don't know. She's like, open it. And I open it as chocolate chip cookies, double chocolate chip cookies. She was so proud. She said, she's like, I stole them from the hotel. I really didn't want to burst her bubble and be like, if they're giving them away, mom didn't steal them. I think it was her bonding moment between, you know, criminals. Like I stole them and I smuggled them in. Those were some of the best cookies I've ever had. That was a cool moment. I love that she tried to bond with you in that way. What a dope mom. Right? That was really cool of her. Thank God she didn't do what I did because she would have been caught away earlier because, I mean, literally, the way she was looking around, she did the worst thing you could do when you're about to do something wrong is just really, like, look at everybody and make eye contact with the guard. Like, no, just do it. Don't just pull them out. Don't make a production of it. Did you ever get caught doing anything else bad growing up? I definitely did, but not that much. And I was really the kid who got away with a lot. I really covered my tracks really, really well. I remember Sean and I were at this party and we were now over the age of 21. Our former teachers were at this party. So we're sitting there, probably 21, 22 years old, drinking with our teachers and laughing. And my friend Sean got caught for everything. I mean, he had like the, the suspension record in our high school. So I was just making fun of him. And I was like, see, Mr. Smith? I was like, Sean was the bad one. Sean did this. Sean did that. And she's like, yeah, Sean was not a good kid. And I was like, I told you. And I'm just busting his chops. And she goes, well, hold on. Hold on, Craig. One second. You were every bit as bad as Sean, but you never got caught. Did you ever sneak out? I didn't have to. My parents were great in terms of curfew and going out. I had a two o'clock in the morning curfew. Nobody ever stayed up for me. So I was coming home at four. Did your dad do any shenanigans? From what he told me, yeah. He was an adventurous young lad as well. He liked to party, you know, and he liked his beer. I could tell he had fun. Did you ever get like a DUI or anything fun? No, I did not. What an interesting and good question. I feel like yeah, I'll tell you something very interesting. Getting arrested and getting sent to prison it turned out to be such a good thing. Up to the point of getting arrested, I was still going out to restaurants and drinking more than I should and driving home. And it was just kind of what you did. And I'm not proud of it, but I will never do that again. My crime had nothing to do with drinking and driving, but it just opened my eyes to it. And I was like, no friggin' way. There's no way in hell I would ever do that again. And I feel really fortunate that there was a stopping point to it. So speaking of your whining and dining, because that actually reminded me of my days in LA when I was single and making a lot of money and I could just do that. I actually have spent $500 to $1,000 on a meal too. That was some of my best times. Tell me a little bit more about that. I still enjoy going out and having a wonderful meal. I think it's one of the greatest things that we can do, especially when you're with somebody that you really connect with. 
but we would go out to Greenwich, Connecticut. We would go to all the nice restaurants there. And then in Manhattan quite a bit. Probably one of the best meals I've ever had was my wife and I had lunch at La Bernadette. It was like a thousand dollar lunch, which is just stupid, but it was so good. Yeah, I think it was a nine course meal. So they just kept coming and everything was just different and unique and taking the time, just sitting for hours, enjoying fully. The FBI subpoenaed receipts for the restaurants that we would go to just to demonstrate how I was spending the money that I had gotten through ill-gotten gains. You know, it was just crazy to hear that repeated back in court. Mr. Stanland ordered literally, I mean, it was one of our favorite restaurants was up in, uh, it was one of the ones in Greenwich, an Italian place. The judge makes a joke about getting a wine lesson from the receipts. I got an education on wine, thanks to you, Mr. Stanland. And literally only one half of the courtroom laughed. But going into sentencing, it's like a wedding. You know, you've got the, the bride's family on one side and the groom's family on the other. So it's me and my family on one side and then just them, you know, the government and everybody else on the other side. I love that there was a good moment in all of that, though. I'm glad they got a kick out of it. I didn't at the time. I was sitting there just like, wow, this is not going to be good for me because of the stress of getting arrested and just knowing what was coming. I lost 30 to 35 pounds. So when I was standing at sentencing, I was really weak. My attorney in his infinite wisdom, he told me to buy the ugliest, cheapest black shoes that I could find because you don't want to go into court for a financial crime wearing $700 shoes. And I get that. That makes sense. So I went to Target and I bought these just awful shoes. They hurt my feet so bad, which just went right up to my back. I've, with the weight loss and the stress, I just felt so beat up to the point where my attorney literally said in sentencing, he's like, your honor, look at him. He looks like death. This is what this has done to him. You know, he has remorse. He feels shame. Like you can see it on him. And I was just sitting there thinking like, this is an interesting tactic, but yeah, he's right. I was like, I could barely stand right now. Did those shoes prepare you for prison shoes? In a sense, they really did. The boots that they give you when you go into prison are the worst, awful things. And I worked in the kitchen. These boots that they gave us were steel-toed, which made sense, you know, if you obviously drop. The canned goods are the biggest canned goods I've ever seen. They're 10-pound cans of corn, giant things. So we have steel-toed boots, so uncomfortable. And here's what I thought was so funny. You had to wear boots when you were in the kitchen. They're like, you had kitchen duty. You had to wear them. Otherwise, you get written up. You get in trouble. They were the slipperiest damn shoes in the entire world. The kitchen floor was always greasy. And it was like wearing ice skates. And it wasn't until I had been there for a little bit, there was another short guy who was leaving. He was like, hey, Smiley. My nickname was Smiley in prison. Hey, Smiley, I'm leaving. Do you want my boots? And he had boots that you can buy from the commissary. And they were much nicer. They wore like sneakers. I love that. Actually, I've interviewed a murderer and she was telling me about the shoes and she's like saying that you're lucky if you get ones that fit. Mine were too tight. Curious if she had this. When I checked into prison, you know, I had to do the, the strip search and everything like that. So it was completely naked, doing the whole humiliating thing. I'm standing there covering myself. And he looks at me at this time, I've literally went down to 109 pounds. He's like, what size are you? Well, I wasn't going to say anything to the guard, but I'm like, are you serious right now? What, what size do you think I am? I'm a, I'm a stick. You know, I was like, I'm small. And I watched him get a big smile on his face. And I watched him just reach to the upper right where it said double extra large and just pull down the pants, the shirt, the t-shirt, no belt, and just laugh. And he's like, here you go. And I later found out fat guys got small. Small guys got bags. It's just something that they did to everybody. How did you keep them up? I had to hold them. I looked like a complete mess. 
Did you get to take any pictures of yourself for Instagram? <laughs> we actually had a prison photographer. So there was actually a guy whose job it was. I just never got it. I never got my picture taken. Is that the first time you'd ever been fingerprinted? Technically, no. When we were in fourth grade, they actually fingerprinted all of us to put us in the database for potential kidnappings in the future. So it was a school-wide thing. From fourth grade to being arrested, no, I was not fingerprinted in between. Okay, so let's rewind a little bit and tell my listeners how this all began. When I was doing my training, this was actually when gyms were doing 70% to the trainer and keeping 30 few years after I started my corporate gig and stopped the training. When I was doing it, it was a 70-30 split. I worked at a nice gym. I also had my own business where I would go to people's homes. So I was doing the training. I became really great friends with one of my clients and she and her husband and I would all go out and her husband, his name was Sandy. And that's when Sandy asked me, he's like, how much do you make? I was like, I make about 75. He's like, wow, that's, that's really good. Do you want to make four times that? Yeah, I'd love to. Go talk to my friend, Rick. So I show up. I walk in, Rick's this giant, massive dude wearing all black like Johnny Cash. I sit down in front of him, zero idea what's going on because I have no idea what this company even does at all. You know, I don't know what you guys do here, but I will offer you two things that I know about myself. He said, what's that? Number one, I'm extremely intelligent. Number two, I will work my ass off for you. And he said, you're hired. So I took a massive pay cut to start at the bottom of this company as an inside account manager. It was about five years of doing that and really having that decreased salary. It was a huge struggle for all those years. I was working crazy hours. I was so ingrained in all the accounts that it was a natural transition for me to get promoted. I went from making not too much to just kind of skyrocketing at that point. Is that the first time you've ever made that kind of money? It was. I loved the hell out of it and I enjoyed it immensely. If you could do it all over again, to experience what you've experienced, would you? Yes, absolutely. I wouldn't trade my experience for all the money in the world. There's no way who I am now, what I've learned, the friendships and the experiences that I've had, I would not trade that for anything. You know what's interesting? One of my clients was making six figures and completely burnt out and she didn't really need to work. And so she decided to literally quit with no plan and become a server at like a stop and go just to experience that. And she loves it. Really? Yeah. Good for her. We get so stuck in our patterns and also the status quo. And it's like, who am I to want something more when I have this six figure salary? I have the six figure salary. Who am I to say that there's more to life? And then the family steps in. They're like, well, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you have health insurance. You know, you've got these things. You have to think about your retirement. While that's very true, still have to be fulfilled. Living the grind and not being fulfilled, to me, that's just not living at all. If you're getting fulfillment working at the stop and go and you're loving it, that's fantastic. What's interesting is how people treat you differently when you make six figures versus when you're serving at the stop and go. Yes, that is an unfortunate byproduct of our society. There definitely is, there's a bias. It's really unfair. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in that. Do you still know how to act VIP? You asked the best questions. So I have one of my closest, dearest friends. When I was working at the gym, I would go to her mom's soup place. That's where we met. And I start getting friendly with the mom and start getting friendly with my friend. She tells me, she's like, we knew something wasn't right that you were working at the gym. They're like, we, we were like, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. 
what is his story? We thought you owned the gym, if anything. So I think that maybe answers your question that I feel like I do. But I also think that's not, it's not money related. It's like who I am now. And that's what I wouldn't exchange. It's just like going through prison is such a perspective shifter. I just go through life with a different view point. And I think that's what comes through often. I want you to talk about some of the friends that you've made that you wouldn't have. Emma was the one I was just talking about. She's just this amazing, incredible human being. I'll give you just one more as my friend, um, Kandil. She came into the gym and I was selling her a gym membership. And I just knew there was something about this woman. Like she had this glow in her eyes. These are people that I would have never, ever met and grateful for each and every one of them. I want to know about your prison friends. I went to a white collar facility. So it was, you know, a ton of people like me and nonviolent drug offenders. Right before this, I was listening to your episode with Quan, which was amazing. And, you know, Quan was saying how there's some of the nicest people that he met there. I had all of those too. My bunkie was just this amazing human being. So smart, so super wealthy. He took $292 million was what he got caught for very fatherly to me. He was incredible. My friend Sal was just this massive dude, 6'4", 275, and just like took me under his wing, if you will, in the beginning, and just gregarious and fun and nice and very wise as well. I mean, I really did meet just some of the nicest people. There's something interesting where, regardless of who you were on the outside, when you are a prisoner, you're all equal. A lot of the guards were extremely nice to us and they treated us with respect. Some of the guards treated us like prisoners. So there's this common bond in a sense of it doesn't matter who you were on the outside, we're all nothing on the inside and we're all wishing that we were somewhere else, not here. I don't keep in touch with any of them. You know, I thought that I would, but there really is just a separation. Is there any sort of community or support? Great question. There is a white collar support group that I am a member of. My neighbor, found out about me getting arrested, my 80-year-old neighbor, Wayne, and he sent me an email. It's like, I read the paper. I'm very sorry to hear that this is happening to you and your wife. My friend, Jeff, runs this organization. You should reach out to him. So I reached out to Jeff, and Jeff counseled me before going in, told me what to expect, how to behave, just how things work. And it was so beneficial. Now we meet every Monday. We have a Zoom call. You know, there's anywhere from 10 to 20 plus of us that get on this call. What's super interesting is there are people who have been indicted. There are people who are awaiting sentencing. There are people who just got out. And there are people who have been out for quite a long time. So it's a very wide spectrum of people who have been in the system in one shape or another. So what's great about that is that there are that many different perspectives. Do you feel like you were treated fairly in the court system? This is a super, super interesting question. At the time, I would have said no. I was playing the victim role. How dare they do this? How dare they say this? There was, you know, they made some mistakes in the, in the criminal report. The prosecutor overstated my net worth by 400 plus thousand dollars at sentencing. Small little things that just really stood out. It wasn't until I was in prison and I was listening to my friends talk about the system, saying 97% of all federal cases plead guilty. While there's some truth to that, you know, I was also sitting here thinking, you burned down your building to collect insurance. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You wrote 4,000 bogus prescriptions. Like, I knew what everybody's crime was. It was like, you, you actually did these things. You can't use 
that 97% statistic because you're actually guilty. And so what I did was I turned the mirror around. I was like, am I doing the same thing? I said, yeah, I am. And what I knew what I was doing was wrong. At that point, I had to accept responsibility fully and deeply. And it made me realize if I didn't knock that first domino down of making that choice to commit the crime, and my fraud lasted just about 10 months, so it was a series of choices that I had to continually make to keep perpetuating the fraud. If I hadn't have done any of that, a prosecutor would have never known my name, and he would have never had an opportunity to make that mistake. Once I accepted that responsibility and I stopped playing the victim, I was like, wait a second, I know where he got that number. He pulled it off an old report. Yes, they treated me fairly because I did what I did. Yeah, can you talk to me what it was like being arrested by the FBI? The most horrific, terrifying moment of my life. It was completely surreal. The FBI had been tracking me for a while, but they didn't realize I started a new job. My old job, I worked out of the house. Now I'm driving into Manhattan from Connecticut. I show up at my new job Tuesday morning, 8.45 or so. I see that I've missed call. And this was literally the voice message. It was, Mr. Stanlon, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately or we'll issue a warrant with the federal marshals. So that was my introduction to the FBI. My heart fell through the floor. I had trouble breathing. I couldn't find air. What do I do? And it was just sheer terror. So I had to drive from Manhattan back to Connecticut. So it was an hour of calling my dad, calling my wife, trying to find an attorney because I don't have a criminal attorney on file. When I drove into my community, lived in a gated community and I go through the gate, I take the turn down the other uh, hill and they saw my car immediately. They were all outside. There were 15 agents who had their guns, there were cars everywhere. It looked like a movie scene. It's over. And also just my life is over. You know, I could just feel that weight of it's done. Everything is done. I don't know what happens now. Guess what? What's that? My husband worked for Cisco. Seriously? During that oh, time. During that time, really? Wow. Okay. Did he know anything about the case? Did he know any of that? So I mentioned that I was interviewing you tonight. He was like, oh, yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> All right. Isn't that funny? <laughs> that he was in Silicon so... Valley. We were in Palo Alto at the time. So we have to connect the dots a little bit. You were working at a gym. Then one of your clients was like, how would you like to make four times what you're making? And who wouldn't want to? I took the corporate job, took the leap, and ended up becoming very, very successful and enjoying the lifestyle that accompanies that. So an interesting thing was happening. The Cisco products that we were selling, the margins were shrinking. And so my paychecks were getting smaller, but my love of the lifestyle and my need to maintain that lifestyle, that was escalating. Honestly, I didn't feel worthy of my success. I could see that now so clearly, but at the time I really thought that I needed to maintain all of this to maintain you know, the marriage, to maintain my own identity, to maintain who I was. So paychecks going down, the need to do all this stuff going up. Because I started at the bottom, I knew exactly how everything worked. I knew how all the systems worked. So I was able to start putting this idea together that would eventually lead to my fraud. This is going to work. I remember being like, wow, this is really exciting and nerve wracking. My fraud took the, the choice to click the enter button and to click the mouse to click the enter button. And when I did that, my heart told me not to. I knew what I was doing was wrong and it told me not to and I still went ahead and did it. And every single time that I made that choice to commit the fraud, it took a lot of clicking those mouse buttons and hitting those enter buttons every single time I knew it was wrong and just ignored that voice over and over and over again until the FBI left me that voicemail. 
mentioned Mark Devine too. I actually heard him speak at Tony Robbins and he was the male favorite. And he talks about the heart and the mind and being aligned there. I love that episode. And it really was just so powerful. And I was so out of alignment and it just felt awful. It was like two people living in one body. It was interesting because at sentencing, the judge actually said to me, she's like, Mr. Stanlin, these letters show a good man. They show a great man. Your friends and family love you very much. I think you're a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, hiding behind the good so you can do the bad. It hurt so badly because I actually remember at sentencing going, she's right. And that was that Mark Devine. And it took me a long time to get that voice back and to actually learn how to trust myself again. How did you learn to trust yourself again? The author, Kamal Ravikant, he's a friend of mine. He actually threw a tweet up and said, the surest path to self-confidence I know is making keeping commitments to yourself. I took that to heart and I just started making and keeping commitments. And the first one that I did was conquering my fear of public speaking. Fear put me in prison. I need to conquer all my fears. I need to do the reverse and not succumb to them, but I need to execute them one by one. And public speaking was my number one fear. So I faced my biggest fear, and this is gonna sound ridiculous, but I faced my biggest fear, I didn't die, and I could feel a little bit of trust just in doing that. And I said, holy crap, this works. Part of this process was also forgiving myself and being able to do that was interwoven with building trust in myself. But when I was able to do that, that helped build the trust as well. I was so consumed by shame for what I did. My wife ended up leaving me. I knew that if I didn't shine a light on it, I was going to be owned by that story for the remainder of my life. So the very first speech I gave at Toastmasters, it's an icebreaker speech, which is exactly as it sounds. It's tell us about yourself. And I could have talked about my childhood. I could have talked about this. I talked about getting arrested by the FBI, being suicidal, losing my wife, losing everything. And I just laid it all out on the line on my very first speech. Holy cow, he's going there on his icebreaker. That like made me realize that I went out on that limb and I was vulnerable in that way. I mean, I almost started crying in the middle of it. I'm not going to allow the shame. and I'm not going to allow this story to rule over me for the rest of my life because I'm going to own it. Dude, you're badass. Thank you. You know, when we're vulnerable, we give people permission to be vulnerable as well. And it just dismantles and diffuses that shame in such a beautiful way. You own your story. You own your life. Your story owns you. It owns your life. And the difference between those two is tremendous. My dad has worn an ankle bracelet. Really? Nobody told me. I wish they did. Need to wear two socks. Because as I got this thing on me and I'm walking home and I'm so excited to be going to my new apartment, I almost didn't make it home. Like I can handle pain, no problem. But I'm limping and I was like, I have three blocks left. Should I hop on my left foot? It hurt so badly how raw it rubbed everything. Ask your dad if he wore two socks. My grandfather wore one too. Really? White collar crime too, by the way. Nice, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) He was facing jail time, but they were able to pay large fines. I found out that the feds raided my dad's manufacturing plant because I was working in an NPR station reading the news and weather in college. And the story came across the news wire. And I was like, nobody read this story. Oh my God. What a horrible way to find out. I can't imagine how you felt. And just being like, what what just happened? What's going on? When I got out of prison, my name was all over. I mean, I blew up Google like crazy. It slowed down some now because of all the stuff I've put out, just my website, the TED Talk. 
like it's bumped things down a little bit. Now what I do for living, I mean, I literally, I call myself a reinvention architect. I help people to start over. That's actually what I do. I am very open about my story. I was like, here's what I've done. And I completely reinvented my life a thousand percent. And so I do embrace it and I do embody it and I do own that story. It's so liberating. Not to say that people still don't, I just don't let it in. And I think there's great power in that. Did you feel any sense of higher power in prison? Yes, I absolutely did. In a couple of different moments. There was one that I, I was there for approximately two months and just living in that shame, living in that regret, sitting at this picnic table and journaling. And I just started daydreaming. And in that moment, direct download from the universe, what's important in life. And it was just, you know, family, friends, creativity, joy, all of these beautiful things that don't cost ascent. It was so pure, so beautiful, and so empowering. Where I was just like, I get it. But I literally looked up and I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not going to F this up. But then I snapped back to reality and I realized that I was still in prison. And it just was like this crushing blow. It was a beautiful moment that actually ended up sending me deeper into a shame spiral. You mentioned that you were suicidal. When did that happen? I had thoughts of it after the arrest. It was between the arrest and getting actually going to prison was about 10 months. So it was 10 months of pure uncertainty. And there were nights where I would just drink myself silly and fall over on the kitchen floor. For some reason, I decided to sit on the kitchen floor after my wife would go to bed. And I would just grab the Captain Morgans and I would do these tiny little pours. I would just do tiny little pours to like trick myself into thinking that I wasn't drinking that much, but I would, you know, pretty much kick the bottle. How much is my life insurance worth? It would help my wife out. She would get out of this, you know, she could start a new life. She'd be great. There's enough for my sister, my niece and nephew. And my wife told me that she was leaving me on December 22nd in the prison visiting room. And that just really was the final nail in the coffin where I just was like, I, I can't take this. And there was this really weird thing that happened. I was so trapped in my head that my brain showed me a short video of what my own suicide would look like. And it was in one of the houses I owned. And it literally was me putting the gun in my mouth and pulling the trigger. And it was so vivid. It was so real. It was so raw. I lived with this thing running on a loop in my head. I lived with that for four months. In prison, you can't mention that you're suicidal because they lock you in solitary confinement. That scared the absolute hell out of me. So I couldn't say it over the phone because phone calls are recorded. Can't say it in email because emails are read. Can't tell any of my incredible prison friends because I know they would have cared for me. There's a good chance they could have told a guard. I can't tell anybody any of this. So I just bottled it up. And I think, you know, the more we bottle anything up, just the more it grows and grows and grows. I get an email from my best friend of 30 plus years. My friend, Sean, emails me out of the blue. And he says, it's like, hey man, you mind if I come for a visit this weekend? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. I knew I could tell Sean. I knew I could share this with him and get it off my chest. Sean has been my rock, my best friend for 30 plus years. I can tell him anything. He won't judge me. So I'm just elated that I get to get this burden off of me. I see Sean's truck pull in. I meet him in the visiting room. We buy food from the vending machine. And I'm like, I can't wait to tell this guy. I can't wait. This is the moment I've been waiting for. I open my mouth before I can utter a word. Sean's life is a mess. He's getting a divorce. He's got money issues. He's got work issues. His life is just in a really crappy place. And there's a sadness in my friend's eyes and in his voice that I've never heard. And in that moment, 
you know, I was so convinced that I was worthless without my things, you know, and not knowing who I was without those fancy cars, without the fancy watches, without those fancy dinners. But in that moment, I realized I had value and I had worth in just being a friend, nothing more. That was it. He needed me. He needed his best friend to share this with. That's when I realized that I had value outside of what I always thought. What a beautiful story. Thank you. I put a lot of writing out there. I put a lot of posts. I share my story very openly. And with the coaching business, I offer this one free call, right? And I start every call the same way. And I say, what was the impetus to you booking this call? Tell me what was going through your mind. And this one woman said to me, she said, I had just gotten into an argument with my mother. It was a really big one. And I decided I was pure uncertainty. So I went to Reddit and I started looking things up. She goes, and I found, I had put this post up on Reddit that has done really well. It was five lessons I learned in prison to help with coronavirus. And it was just, you know, everything is temporary. Our perspective dictates our reality, things like that. She goes, I found that post and I was really intrigued by you. She goes, so I looked at your bio. I saw that you did a TED talk. So I looked up your TED talk. Your TED talk really moved me. And she goes, and then I went to your website and I saw that you do these things for a living. And you made me stop thinking about killing myself. It stopped me dead in my tracks. And I was like, holy cow, what a humbling thing to hear. We don't know what our actions can actually do. We don't know the ripple effect that a small action can have and how far that can actually reach. I love that your nickname was Smiley. And you said (laughs) that we need to smile more. Thank God for that. It does work. All right, let's end on a funny note. I am a mom of four, and this corona thing has gotten me totally out of shape. My youngest is one, but my husband has set up a whole freaking home gym in our basement. What are the three best exercises that I should do? Oh, God, really? You're going to put me on the spot? I haven't trained in ages. I would do squats, even just air squats. Nice full body exercise. Do you have dumbbells? I have dumbbells, and what are those um, things that you swing? Oh, you have kettlebells. I have kettlebells. So squats? Kettlebell swings. I hate squats, but I know I need to do them. I've been doing push-ups on the bathtub. That's that's awesome. Keep doing your push-ups, throw the squats in, throw the kettlebell swings, and then maybe do lunges in. But as you're lunging, you might want to take a light weight and do a uh, overhead press with it as well. So you're getting a little bit of that full body going in. Well, this has been so much fun. Absolutely. This is a blast. Thank you so much. Let my listeners know where they can find you. CraigStanland.com, my website. I hang out on Instagram quite a bit. So Craig underscore Stanland. And if anybody is interested, my TED Talk is called How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. I am doing a Kickstarter right now. It's going to end on September 4th. And that is to fund self-publishing my memoir called The Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After the Prison. Are you doing the Tucker Max program? I am. So I actually want to use Scribe Media. They have a publishing package. So that's what I'm raising funds for. It's the proofreading, copy editing, the marketing, putting it out on Amazon. They take care of everything. You've heard from my mom. Now let's hear from grandpa. Craig, what a very interesting story. And as my mom would say, sometimes these things happen. We don't understand why other than they happen for a reason. And in your case, these experiences and feelings that you have is again, where you're using this as a tool to help others. And you needed to use all those tools in your toolbox to help yourself overcome 
some of these anxieties uh, being arrested. I have a similar experience where my dad and my sister and some of the uh, construction maintenance crew were taking care of the ecology over at the company. All the lines were hooked up from the neighborhood where the city used us as a scapegoat for some of their own problems that during that time they were cracking down where they overdid it, even with universities. Uh, anybody that was doing anything wrong with their lab affluence, uh, I mean, were getting fined where they just went bananas with, uh, with the EPA rules. And it turns out that we fought this case for close to seven years. We paid our way out of it where the lawyer fees were more than the fine. It's really an attack on your entire reputation. The funny part is I thought that we could actually win the case and countersue them. But do you live your whole life uh, fighting the government or fighting something and eventually to have closure and go on with your life? I think that in your particular case, even if something was done wrong, they made such a big deal out of it that, especially in our anodizing process, is really not even harmful to the environment. So, I mean, there isn't even any science behind it. So it can be very frustrating. In your particular case, of course, you found a way to continue to make a high salary, even when your percentage and commissions were lowered. Uh, you knew better. You're very smart and an intelligent man. But when you were younger, you were getting away with different things. And you got used to a lifestyle where you thought that's what life was all about. I found it very interesting that also the not knowing what's going to happen to you can be a very depressing time. And a lot of people, when they're facing an enormous amount of strain or pressure, they're like numb. They can't think, they can't eat, they can't sleep. So much tension that you're right, that's probably, if you do that to uh, someone that's uh, uh, heavy, uh, that's a good way to lose weight. But unfortunately, it's a miserable way to lose weight. I found that you taking these experiences and being able to articulate your feelings and understanding of people in prison, outside of prison, being able to see what the real values of life are, you've been able to now take your story and help yourself. And by helping yourself, you now can help others to be able to help one person also that thought about committing suicide. You've done a tremendous value to where it's infinite. It's an infinite value when you can change someone's life that wants to take that life and now say, I can go on because I feel connected to a person that's experienced some of these nightmares and traumas that I might have experienced and be able to pick themselves back up. It was also a very interesting twist that the person that you wanted to unload your bombshell of how depressed that you were, and yet he came to you and was more depressed than even you were, and you were there to save him, where you were hoping he was gonna save you. Isn't an ironic twist that by you staying strong and being able to stay solid, that you were able to save your best friend rather than vice versa. Your father is a no bullshit guy. And even though he liked to party a little bit when he was younger, but when it came to his profession and giving his, his, his example, he really takes ethical values very seriously. And I think that speech that he gave you, even though you knew it was coming, in a sense, helped you as well. It's sometimes 
need to hear that from someone that really loves you and cares about you, where they spend that time with you to shake you up and try to say, hey, we know that you're better than this. And to step up, be responsible for what you've done, or as you would say, be committed to what you've done and step above it. This is a good story for many, many of Rena's listeners. And I wish you well and hope that you're able to continue uh, to help other people with your story. We all have our own unique map, which helps us understand ourselves and others. Increased self-awareness is key to maximizing your career and life. The UMAP assessment reveals your strengths, values, skills, and interests. There's also a UMAP youth assessment for kids. To get your personalized UMAP, go to myumap, that's Y-O-U.com today. Use the code BCD for a discount. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.